Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Michael Puck, who is from Ultimate Kronos Group, and you've heard him before talking about employee engagement. And I also have as a first-time guest, Erin Bell, who is from Degreed. So, ladies first, Erin, would you mind giving a quick introduction to your background, what you do, and who you serve? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. So yeah, my name is Erin Bell. I'm a director of enterprise sales um, here at Degreed. We're an upskilling um, and career mobility platform. And I'm, you know, typically surveying the learning and development or talent management teams at large enterprise um, companies. Thank you. Michael? Marcus, great to be back. I'm really excited about uh, our discussion today. Just a quick intro, I'm a senior partner with the HCM Advisory Group at UKG, as you already said, the Ultimate Kronos Group. More specifically, I'm running the Human Insights and Experiences team. And for all 12,000 of us uh, at UKG, our purpose is people. And I think that's what we're gonna, going to talk about. I'm an economist by training and a recovering HR practitioner of two decades. Before that, I had a career in the military. I was an officer in the German Air Force. Let me also mention that I run a non-for-profit that's benefiting shelter and rescue animals because I think this might actually come into the discussion today. Excellent. Um, oh, I'm intrigued about that. Sorry, Erin, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, Michael's introduction was way better than me. You can obviously see he's a veteran. Um, but I did also just want to say that the views that I express here today are just solely my own and not um, endorsed by Degreed. So just want to make that. Excellent. I, I'm heartbroken that Degreed won't endorse my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so let's kick off with the million dollar question. So Michael, let's kick off with you. Why are so few employees actually engaged in their work in their companies? Yeah, so I would call it, and let, let's just attach a number to it right away. So Gallup is telling us that only 13% of employees are actively engaged. But Gallup actually is doing something very interesting when you look at their numbers, because they always group together the engaged population and the actively engaged population, whereby they break it out on the disengaged side. So that's interesting because what's the difference between actively engaged and engaged? For me, it's an on or off. And um, for me, the engaged group is kind of the lukewarm engaged group. Is that it? <laughs> so I think the problem that we're facing, why so few employees are engaged, because I think they perceive that they're getting the short end of the stick. And this has been obviously ongoing for years and decades, but... Companies expect employees to dedicate themselves to achieve the company's goals and objectives. But what does the company do in return? Pay money? Yes. But that's not cutting it any longer. And there are expectations much broader than that. I think it's the imbalance of these two that caused this big issue to start. I think there's some value in exploring what actually motivates people. So Erin, let's bring you in on this. In my experience, people are almost never motivated by the same thing their manager is. And most managers, in my experience, assume that they are. In sales, there is a myth that salespeople are motivated by money. And mm -hmm. the ones that are generally don't have a lot and probably aren't being very successful, or they are soulless sharks. When I was in recruitment, what I found was money was about fifth or sixth in their hierarchy of factors that were important to them in a move. So what is motivation? Where does it come from? And why do managers so badly misunderstand it? Well, I think it comes down to the same reason why someone potentially is a bad salesperson is they're not doing their proper discovery with their, you know, their customers or their, their prospects that are in front of them. And I think you know, this is not an idea that I came up with my own uh, on my own. Jen Ferguson, who I know has been um, has spoken with you before, she talks a lot about this. You know, you need to ask people, individuals, because everyone has their individual motivations. But I think I'm a story of of a salesperson who's not motivated by money. I started off as a social worker. I studied sociology. I'm fascinated by um, you know what society and culture. 
and also helping marginalized communities. So for myself, I got into sales because it was a way that I could, yes, um, live you know, a fairly comfortable life, but also actually really help people. And if you look through my career history, you'll notice that I've always gone towards or been gravitated towards organizations that are more mission-driven. Um, so if I have a manager who is, you know, incentivizing me only on money and thinks that I'm only motivated by money, then that person and I are not going to do well together. And that's not going to be a really great relationship. So I think there's a lot of factors that go into motivation. It's how you grew up. What did you see around you? What were the stories that you were told? And what are your own personal interests? You know, if you grew up in a in a family where you saw a lot of struggle, then your motivations might be different from somebody who grew up in maybe a more comfortable or more privileged environment. So it's really about getting to know the person in front of you. And I think that's why the new buzzword around HR tech is personalization, because not every person has the same motivation. Michael, same question. Yeah, actually, I'd like to share a study that I just recently uncovered, and I think it, it really drives it to the point perfectly. So a study had found that individuals working for manager that cared about the employees' personal lives had engagement scores that were three times higher than employees that did not think that their manager cared about their personal lives. Nothing else was different. Just did the manager care about them as a human being is the way I would reword that. So it goes very much to what Aaron just said. If you look at me and, you know, just a little piece in the machinery and you don't care about anything that I potentially could contribute that is coming from outside my work and you don't care about what I do outside my work, you cannot separate individuals. You cannot look at just the employee. Because by the very definition, people are not just employees. And if you hire an, an individual, he's bringing or she's bringing their whole selves to work if they're allowed. If they're not allowed and they have to separate the two, you get a bad deal because you get only a fraction of what they otherwise could contribute. Well, last time we spoke, you talked about this uh, concept of discretionary effort. Yeah. Uh, and and what I find really interesting is where you have people who are deeply engaged, then what you get is not only the, all of them, uh, you get their identity and their role, but you get the extra push. They get up and they're excited to come to work. When they're at work, they are full on. When they go home, they're fully engaged. And coming to work isn't a drug. And I, I recently did a profile called the Motivational Map, and I scored 99% on motivation. And I wasn't surprised, actually. I was pleased because I don't think I've had a day in the last 13, 14 years where I haven't been excited to come to work. Every day has been 95 to 100% I've thoroughly enjoyed. And when it's over, I kind of regret it. Friday rolls around. <laughs> And I'm thinking, oh, come on, Monday. And I love my weekends, don't get me wrong. But it's somewhere that is stimulating and it allows me to express every ounce of creativity. So, Erin, bringing you back into this, tell me this, what are the best practices and the best characteristics of managers who do their discovery? And what do they do differently to your average manager? That's a really good question. And I actually... I just um, I had to have a new manager um, who's taking care of me now at, at Degreed. And I I was really chuffed, as the British would say, with him and, and the way that he approached um, meeting me. And he sat me down and he literally asked me, he said, you know, why are you here and what's important to you? He's like, is it making money? Is it, you know, proving yourself? Like what, what is underlying, um, you know, what's going to make you happy and what's going to make you 12 months down the road feel satisfied and that you've accomplished something. And I said to him, I said, it's actually not money. I grew up with a fair bit of, I would say, healthy and unhealthy imposter syndrome. So for me, it was really proving myself as a salesperson. What did that mean? Well, it mean it meant that I needed, you know, proper coaching and training to help me level up in my career. I would say I am rallying fanatically rallying 
against the notion that salespeople or employees are inherently lazy. And I think that this is something that's talked about on LinkedIn and other social media sites, you know, day in and day out. I just don't believe it's true. I think people are scared for their jobs. They're scared that they're not going to continue to have those jobs so that they can live and provide for themselves or their families. And at the end of the day, they have this idea in their head, which is true and has been proven to be true over and over again, that if you are not a top performer, you are going to be called, you're out. And I think that you know driving people by fear is just the exact opposite of what people should be doing. You have to give the time to develop that person, to train that person, to coach that person and have it happen on a continuous basis so that they can be the best person that they can be. But it starts with that question. What's important to you and what in 12 months down the line, you know, are you going to feel accomplished or satisfied? You know, what has to happen in that period? This is really interesting. I was having a conversation with a client of mine only this morning and he's at a career crossroads and he's deciding, does he go for the bootstrap scale up technology company where, you know, you go out there and you power the phones or does he go for an organization that is really focused on behavior. And great example of this is AppDynamics. AppDynamics had a culture where you didn't get fired for failing to hit your quota. Uh, you got fired for not doing your behavior. And um, the objective was to make sure that people were habituated into doing great behavior consistently over time. And the one thing we have control over is our behavior. But if you don't tie that to why someone comes to work, and uh, you haven't worked out a behavioral cookbook, a recipe book of how much of which behaviors will help you to achieve those outcomes, and you don't tie their personal objectives to their corporate goals, then what you're going to end up with is people who are terrified. They're constantly looking over their shoulder. They're stressed. And we see in sales just how much mental illness there is. We're talking about a third of the UK population suffers from some form of mental health issue. And I know, Michael, you've got some really interesting statistics in terms of the impact that this needless stress creates in terms of absenteeism, sickness, conflict. So what what are your thoughts in terms of making sure that the work environment is somewhere that people feel safe, feel valued, feel included? First of all, it is super important. I can't really think of anything that is more important because if I don't feel that I can personally contribute all of myself to work, I have to hold back. I have to judge what I say, what I do. I cannot make a 100% contribution. I'll give you an example. Actually, happened yesterday. I have two new employees. And normally when that happens, I go through an exercise and that's their, this week is their second week. So it's really early on. And we did an exercise called Mile. It's called Most Influential Life Experience. And so we took an hour, the three of us, and the idea was, and there came prepared, you share three to five of your most influential life experiences with the rest of the team. And the purpose was to get a better understanding, a grounding in who that person is. Because yes, it's great to find out where they want to go, but if you don't understand where they're coming from, it it is somewhat limited as well. So we did that. We gave each other 15 minutes and it was a a very emotional um, process that we we went through, but it it was a lot of fun. It was uh, very helpful from from a team building perspective. And, And so something that I really recommend you take time if your culture allows that. But the good news is managers can create their own microcultures. And I think if you as a manager can create that, and, and I said many times prior to, to going into the exercise, share as much as you feel comfortable. If you want to keep it very surface level, keep it very surface level. If you want to go deep, I had employees before tell me about childhood abuse and drug abuse, and they just opened up and they, and after the session was over, and that was back in the day when we were face to face, there was group hugging. And (laughs) it is amazing the relationship you can build in no time if you go about it in a genuine way 
care about individuals, ask them what, what's important to them, what their past has you know, served them and, and what they want to do in the future, as, as Aaron said. Okay, so there are going to be a bunch of hard-ass capitalists out there that say that we're not running a holiday camp. Uh, what do you say to those idiots? So sorry, those people. <laughs> well, I think that it's it's just what is that the natural Darwin's theory? You know, like they're going to eventually have to go out. Like the managers of the '80s and the '90s, according to Simon Sinek, you know, they were trained in the complete wrong way. So naturally, they're just going to be cold from these um, organizations because they're not doing the right thing. And it's not, you know, we're seeing a change happen. I don't know, Michael, if you feel the same way, but there's sort of a reckoning that's happening across human resources, across capitalism, across uh, organizations that say meaning is as important as profit, right? There has to be more. Yeah, and, and even even the example Marcus provided earlier with the client you talked to, meaning people asking the questions. I've been probably for the last year when I go and give presentations, I have a list of 10 what I call career choices or preferences that I share with individuals. And this is a list, this is a checklist that I'm using when I'm looking for an opportunity that's being presented to me. Does it meet my criteria? Because I'm not just blindly jumping after something because it might be the next shiny object. If it doesn't meet my criteria, if it doesn't serve me and, and my purpose, then I walk away from it. And money really doesn't matter in that case. And can I just, I just add real quick, just to kind of go on Michael's point earlier about the um, exercise, the mile one, not only as a leader, are you asking these questions of your employees, but you're also being vulnerable back and sharing with your employees, your own experiences, I think is also really important. The best managers I've ever had. And if you ask me what motivates me, it's that I don't want to disappoint my manager, probably due to some of the family dynamics that I had growing up. But that is a huge motivator for me. And when that manager gives me a little bit of that their self in our interactions, I am that much more devoted to them. I'm that much more loyal. Yeah. I'm that much more not wanting to disappoint them, therefore doing the best that I can in my job. There's a really important truth in sales, in management, in life, which is if you want others to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. Yeah. You have to show them it's a safe space. Uh, my uh, friend Bill Bartlett has come up with the three P's around coaching, which is permission, potency, and protection. And again, too often, coaching where it is used is used as a way of proving how clever the manager is, that it doesn't feel like a safe spot. But if you have those three components in all of your interactions with your reports, then they know that you have their best interests at heart. One of the people who's really inspired me this year is a guy called Ian Dodds. And Ian is an elderly gentleman now, but he was in the 70s and 80s and 90s working in the likes of ICI, turning around the worst performing organizations or factories and plants within their portfolio. And they had Communist Party uh, cells. Uh, they had constant disputes with management, strikes, absenteeism, sickness. And what was really interesting, the, the key takeaway that I took from my conversation with Ian is about being inclusive. And inclusivity is something that I don't think most people even understand or even consider. And my friend, uh, Rod Jefferson, says diversity is having a seat at the table. Inclusiveness is being able to order from the menu. And I think what's really important is being able to not only have a voice, but for it to be valued and listened to. So, Michael, let me bring you in on this as well. In fact, I, I have a question beforehand. Would it be possible for you to share those, that 10 career checklist? I certainly can. I don't have them necessarily all memorized, meaning I need to take a look at the list, but I can give you a couple from the from the top of the, the list right now. So the first one is 100% virtual work environment. I've been a virtual employee for 13 years. I'm, I'm living in a very rural setting. There's not much around here, but I don't want to move. So virtual work environments are a must-have. And I walk away from regardless what job it is, if it's not a virtual opportunity. So that's the first one. Business travel, less than 30%. Because 
because the downside to being virtual could be that you are 70% of your time in a plane. Not right now, but once that ban is lifted and once the, the plane's flying again. So those are the, the first two that are uh, very important. I have on number seven, which also correlates with your statement earlier, compensation. And the only thing I say about compensation is fair compensation. And so in between other items, like I want to have an environment, a culture that is not risk adverse. What I mean by that, I'm an innovator, I'm an entrepreneur, I go and break stuff. And so if, I, if I'm put in an environment where my opportunities to experiment and to drive innovation is stifled because the culture doesn't accept failure, then that's not a great match for me. So that's actually, with the exception of the first two, probably the strongest of the 10, because that's just what I love to do. This is where I can bring value to the table. And if I cannot, meaning I'm not spending millions of dollars, don't get me wrong here, but it's not being looked at in a positive light to just go out, do something and, and get potentially negative feedback, then that's not an environment for me. So let, let's talk about inclusivity. What is it? So I would actually take it a step further. So we've been talking about diversity and, and inclusion. And, and for me, those are the table stakes. What comes after that is belonging. And I think I mentioned that before. So you gave an analogy of diversity and inclusion for me, and that doesn't fit perfectly into what you just mentioned, but it's kind of the extension of it. If belonging applies, meaning if, if I feel like I belong, then I can dance as if nobody is watching. And this is really bringing my whole self to work, all the weaknesses, all the strengths, the whole package, and I'm being accepted in the totality of what I can contribute. And only once that level has been accomplished is when people really can make a contribution that can shift mountains, if you want to call it that. But diversity and inclusion are the precursors to that. You cannot jump to belonging. Diversity and inclusion have to happen first. Uh, absolutely. I think diversity and inclusion should be, I should hope so, as the very minimum expectation. But yeah. again, we don't see that in all businesses. So, Erin, let's bring you in uh, on this point. In terms of the managers who've made you feel like your voice matters, your opinion matters, and that you belong, again, what were the qualities that you've seen that they brought to the table and what prevented you from experiencing that in roles that you've had in the past? How do I say this? <laughs> um, the, the leaders that I've had that have made me feel heard and included and that I belonged were female leaders, to be honest. I've always done really, really well with having a female boss, probably because maybe I feel I identify with them. I have just experience that their approach was one of understanding that I could have a conversation. I'm a crier. Okay. Like if I'm in a, a situation where I feel like called out or stressed, there's potential for tears. If I'm in that situation and my manager doesn't make me feel ashamed of that, or they are there to hold space for that, then that is going to make me feel like I'm, I'm able to bring my whole self to work. I also have anxiety. And I actually have a male boss right now. He's incredible. Again, he was vulnerable with me sharing his own experiences. But then, you know, we were on a one-on-one -on -one together and I had anxiety. So I said, hey, I need to jump off for a minute. Immediately, he messaged me, what you're feeling is completely normal. Do not be ashamed of it. That is okay. Take as much time as you need. And it was really refreshing because now it's, hey, I can, I can be my whole self and I can be true to the things that I need in the moment, right? So I would say that those are two ways in which managers in the past have made me feel um, heard. And I do remember one time um, I had a manager at a company in Austin, Texas, and she called me out and I, I appreciated her calling me out because she said, I love that you challenge the team and you 
bring a different perspective. But as soon as I start asking you questions to push it a little bit further and to further my understanding of your point, I see you back down. So what I want to do with you is I want to work on your confidence and to have somebody see my whole self, bring that to the table and be able to turn that around into a teachable moment and a coaching moment for me. That to me, I was, I'm still loyal, so loyal to her to this day. That's an awesome story. Yeah, agreed. Marcus, can I give you a very practical example of how managers without much training can immediately invite that type of bring the whole person to work? Absolutely. So I read a book, um, I think it was published two, maybe three weeks ago. It's called What's Your End? But the end is A-N-D. It's by, by John Garrett. Highly recommend the book, but he, he's a CPA, so a chartered public accountant here in the US. He's also a stand-up comedian. And so he, he was living this do life for, for a long time. And over the weekend, meaning his, his comedian career really took off and he was in front of thousands of people over the weekend. And then on Monday morning, he walks into that accounting office and uh, cubicles, completely different environment. And he says, you know, you need to bring your whole self to work. And he tells some really great stories. But the way to make it practical, the way this can be done, whatever people are passionate about, whatever their, their hobbies and their interests outside of work are, is what managers should inquire about and enable individuals to share those. And I wanted to give you a couple of examples. And I got that from, from John Garrett's book. He mentioned, for example, there's somebody participating in Ironman races. So my mind immediately went, so somebody who runs Ironman races, how does that apply to work, regardless of what the job is? Tenacity, grit, perseverance, mental capacity because of the, the physical activity. So then I went down the list and now it's beyond what's in the book. If somebody volunteers at the Boys and Girls Club, increased behavioral awareness, role model function, performing as a stand-up comedian, since John is using that in his book, public speaking, stress management, effective communication. You can pick whatever outside interest, passion, or hobby you want. There is a correlation back to work. And if you're not allowed because of the culture, because of your manager to bring these pieces to work, you have to check that stuff at the door and you feel you're not your whole self. And, and so the very practical portion, this goes back to the research I mentioned earlier. If you want to triple your engagement rates, talk to your employees about their passion outside of work. And it is amazing how things will change instantly. Okay. So if you're looking at creating highly engaged employees, and certainly when I talk to my younger clients, you know, fusty old dinosaurs my age have slightly different sense of what drives them. But when I'm talking to Gen Z and millennial salespeople, typically what they're really looking for is opportunities to grow, to develop experience, to feel like the work that they do matters. And they're looking for more purpose. I'm not saying across you know, everybody, but certainly as a general rule of thumb. And uh, I look at someone like Scott Lease, who wrote Addicted to the Process. And he has a really fascinating culture in his businesses. So he, he's run and grown five $200 million businesses. And he provides 60 hours of cafeteria-style training to his employees, which they can just uh, choose to engage in. And when he's coaching them, the first thing he does is he looks at how much training they've put themselves through. And I think one of the things that I look for is that insatiable curiosity, that childlike interest in the world around them. And it doesn't just have to be about your area of your skill or your discipline. I'm curious, Aaron, in terms of your exposure to that particular generation and looking at your youthful looks, I'm guessing you're in it. What is it that we as old fuddy-duddies really need to understand that's about what drives and motivates people like you? 
I mean, I think it's understanding the world in which we grew up in. We grew up in a world where we saw our, and this is not, again, my, my own thoughts, but we grew up in a world, as Simon Sinek would say, where we saw our parents getting laid off <laughs> consistently from companies that were essentially just trying to, um, you know, they were profitable, but not profitable enough is what Simon Sinek would say. So that's creating a bit of distrust with us and work, right? But I would also say there are, you know, we also grew up, we went through an, an economic collapse in the early, you know, 2000s, 2008 and 2009. So anyone in the early 30s, that's when they were entering the workforce, right? So they probably had to be pretty scrappy to make money or to do other things. And I take myself as an example. I waitressed. I created my own nonprofit on the side. I volunteered to you know, gain experience and gain networking. So I just feel like part of it is not looking at just their resume, but actually having a conversation about you know, what they've done and the, the creative ways in which they've um, been scrappy in their life. I worked for a company when I um, end- exited out of hospitality and went into the workforce called buildassign.com. They had us volunteering together. They gave us volunteer time off. They recognized a volunteer of the month. They were, again, starting that shift to recognize a whole person, which I think are all things that are you know really important to our generation. I also had another friend again, around 2010, who started a company called Rework. And they were um, a company that was going out and recruiting millennials and connecting them to companies that uh, had more meaning, were mission-driven, had something else other than the fact that you can make money at them. And look at the trends that are happening around us. Like in the US, we have this new classification of corporations that are called benefit corporations. That means that they have you know, more to um, be, be beholden to than just the profit that they can provide their shareholders or their stakeholders, right? So I think that overall, we're trending towards that sense of capitalism can be different than the capitalism that we learned in the 80s and the 90s. And the millennials and the Generation Z, as much as we want to roll our eyes at them, we're pushing that forward. And we're asking more of the companies and the organizations that we work for. Your thoughts, Michael? Yeah, no, I I fully agree. And I'll, I'll share an example that I had just, actually earlier this week it was, there's a company in the US here, it's called the Common Thread Collective. It's a digital marketing organization And they found themselves in their early days in a difficult position to attract employees. And so they came together as a leadership team and and figured out what can we do differently to to really stand out and to attract individuals. And they came up with something that's called Tell Me Your Dreams. And it became a really integrated part of who they are as an organization. Let me tell you briefly what it is. So Tell Me Your Dreams is basically the opportunity where part of the onboarding process, individuals are being asked by the leadership team, um, so here's the role that we hired you for, but tell, tell us what is it you want out of life? And it's not out of work, it's out of life. And that's, I think, an important distinguishing factor. So Taylor Holiday is the CEO, and I was participating in an event on Monday of this week, which they call Dream Days. And during those dream days, they have declarations of dreams where individuals come on a Zoom call and says, this is the the dream that I want to pursue. Then they have pursued part of the meeting where individuals that are in the midst of pursuing the dream reporting progress. And then there is an achievement part where individuals have actually achieved their dreams. It is all over the board. It is being a better husband, learning a language, building a business. Very little of it had to do with the actual business that hired them. But because of what they started doing, there was actually a spin-off, an organization that's now called Tell Me Your Dreams. So TMYD is the name of the organization. And they provide that same model as a service to other organizations. The energy on that Zoom call, they have 78 employees. They're a relatively small organization. The chat function was exploding. The video reports from the first gal that came on was crying for five minutes straight, telling about her dream and, and, and what was happening around it. But the energy and the connection that organization has tapped into by giving employees the opportunity to pursue something that they call an outside of work passion 
feeds directly back into the work that's being done for the organization. So I think that is a model that I will explore much more because I think it holds a lot of potential even for mid-sized and large organizations. That presumably requires a massive shift and an openness from managers and leaders. How do you prepare the leadership? What could effectively be a horrific car crash. Yeah, you can't go there. You can't go straight there. But if you think about the previous example I provided, you could start out with something as little as bring your work, your outside of work passion to work and find opportunities for individuals to take a minute or two after a scheduled meeting to say, oh, by the way, here's a passion that I have. And so you can do it in very small increments, but there's actually a three-step process that I've put together so far. The first one is what I call people experiences. And that goes back to the discussion that we had on on the previous podcast, where you want to provide your employees with the value currencies that they're looking for. And there are many more than just compensation. Let me just be as brief as that. The next level up is humanizing work. And this is where bringing the outside of work passion, interests, and hobbies is really falling into. Because that allows individuals to connect with each other and also contribute in areas that you otherwise wouldn't think they could contribute. And the pinnacle of that model I call human flourishing. Eudaimonia is a term that you might be familiar with that is also reflecting the same. But in the end, it's taking for organizations, taking a vested interest and actively supporting employees to be successful in all aspects of life. Can you get there overnight? Absolutely not. Is it worthwhile starting that journey in small steps? I think it's the future of life and work. Agreed. And I would say, you know, you can do things at a leadership level that can also cement these things. So you might mm-hmm. have a humble award. Well, maybe do an empathy award. Do an inclusion award. Do awards and recognition for other things other than being busy and hustling and giving you know yourself to your actual work. Like recognize again the whole person through the leadership awards that you're giving out as well. And Aaron, so that you don't have to say it, Degreed is actually a platform that can enable some of that because you can allow individuals to explore well outside their work responsibilities to learn, to expand, and to grow. And I think that's just one of the the stepping stones to get to something that is much more inclusive and is providing, meaning think about non-for-profit organizations. So it sounds like Erin has started her own, I'm running my own right now. I spent probably, I don't want to tell you how many hours a week I spent in in driving this forward. I'm not getting paid for it, meaning there's money flowing, but obviously not in my pockets. The energy that I put into this, the dedication that I have, because it's meaningful to me, if you could get the same kind of commitment from employees in, let's call it regular jobs, because they're so focused on what they get out of it and what they want to contribute in return, that's where engagement is coming from. So let's go right back to the beginning in the recruitment process. How do you set the expectations so that an employee or a prospective employee who's never worked in that kind of environment doesn't suddenly get freaked out by this kind of approach? Well, first of all, I think you have to be very transparent. And, and I think if you're transparent, if you communicate, this is the culture you will you will see and find and operate within, you will probably push away some individuals. But I think you will even more so attract a specific kind of individuals that would flourish in that environment. The Common Thread Collective, they can't help themselves with resumes because they have so much of an interest from people that I'm hearing, that are hearing that they being enabled to build their own business. And I'll tell you one other piece, which really was shocking to a degree. The very first employee that they offered this to wanted to start a competing business. They wanted to start a digital marketing agency. And guess what? They said, hey, if we really want to make this happen, we push this through and we support them in in making this happen. And that individual has since left that organization, is operating his own agency. But as it turns out, he's attracting a slightly different clientele, much smaller 
And when he is encountering larger accounts, he is giving referrals back to CTC and he continues to be invited to every single Christmas party. So you never know what happens. <laughs> See, that's the difference between the infinite game and the finite game, a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. It's not about there's only one, right? We can actually all succeed. There's enough to go around. And if we're not insecure leaders, and again, this is all inspired by Simon Sinek's talk last week. If we're not insecure and we are secure in who we are and what we can do and what we can bring to the table, then imagine the things that can happen. Imagine the progress that we can make um, and the productivity that can happen around that. Simon Sinek has a really interesting model which Joe Mullins has brought into his recruitment business. And you have, when you're recruiting, he's always looking for people who are maybe a medium level in terms of performance but they're off the scale in terms of trust. And I think in order to do that, you have to be very brave because logic and reason tells you what you should look for are top performers, but often they're ghastly human beings and they're not necessarily great collaborators. And what's really interesting is uh, on average, his recruitment agents build three to five times more than the industry average. Now, on our last podcast, Michael, you put, uh, quoted some really interesting statistics from the S&P 500, where highly engaged employees typically generate 430% higher profit per employee, 290% higher revenue per employee, and over 300% higher share value growth over a five-year period. So th this really requires people to have that infinite mindset, to be growth-orientated, to be inclusive, and to be vulnerable enough to take the risk that this is going to be hard and it can't all be controlled. Because I think one of the themes that I'm picking up here is that you have to release, relinquish control in order to get the results. Because when you try and control it, it's like a command economy. You know, if you're trying to control everything from uh, the central hub, and you are opaque. Because again, one of the things I've observed is ambiguity at the top leads to politics and dissatisfaction at the bottom. Most of the people who are touching your customers. So you end up with dissatisfied customers. Now, it really does take an enormous amount of courage to take that leap. Let's talk about uh, companies that already have shareholders or maybe investors, and the founders want to go down this road. But the conversation that they have to have, how do they manage that conversation in a way that doesn't result in them being booted off the board and uh, then parachuting in a solar shop for a CEO? I think the very first step that every leadership team would have to consider after they fully understand the concept is to model the concept, meaning there's no such thing as tell your employees do X, Y, and Z, but don't tell and do it themselves. Meaning it has to be something that they have to demonstrate. And depending on how drastic of a departure it is from, from the previous culture, they might have to demonstrate this for quite a while because it takes repetition for this new behavior and new cultural setting to sink in and for individuals to trust that new environment. And if you don't build that trust first, Meaning, I was really pleased yesterday when we had that mile, mile conversation that my new employees felt compelled to share on a deep level. But that was just a leap of faith on their side. Meaning, if you have individuals that have been for an, with an organization for years and they have seen the dark side of the culture, it will take them way longer than two weeks to get to the point where they share openly. So it's modeling and giving it enough time to lay the foundation that trust can be experienced, then you can embark on a journey like this. There's a really interesting chap, Anthony Willoughby, mad as a box of frogs. I don't think Anthony will be offended by that. Um, <laughs> he describes himself in far less flattering terms. And he spent the last 40 years working with tribes like the Maasai, tribes in Papua New Guinea, the Mongols, and He's uh, developed a mapping concept, which I think both of you will really find very, very interesting. And what he does, he gets people to draw their map of the world which they occupy. 
it's teed up with a little bit of uh, background in terms, let's say it's the Maasai. Uh, The Maasai, their wealth is uh, measured by the number of cattle they have. And they have to deal with the terrain, the weather. They have to deal with rival tribes. They have to deal with predators. They have problems um, that they need to deal with. And each individual is encouraged to create this map. And what's interesting about this visual representation is that it's full of emotion. It's full of them as human beings. And it's not something intellectual. It's a visceral response to the uh, the exercise. And what's very interesting is depending on whether you have a horizontal or a vertical map will depend on the depth that people will go into around their problems. But it, it's a really powerful way of communicating that whole human being to other people in the organization. Because when you start to share the maps around, then what happens is people say, oh, I had no, had no idea. And the people who are very brittle, they talk about the things that really worry them. And they start opening up as well. Because I think, you know, you've touched on a couple of really critical points here. And Aaron, I'd like to bring you in on this, around trust and vulnerability. Because more often than not, what I see is managers think their job is to manage. Actually, a manager's job is to hire well and then get the best out of those people and trust them to do their job so they don't end up becoming a bottleneck or micromanaging and uh, disempowering people. So I'd love to hear your thoughts around how you are managing your team. And again, it can be the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of the lessons that you're learning along the way. Because I'd be curious about that journey where you've learned to trust, where you've learned to delegate, and you've learned to be vulnerable. Yeah, I think... It's really allowing space for honest conversations, allowing space for someone to come to you and to really dig into that person. Again, it starts with the, the good discovery, right? What motivates them through some of the exercises that we just spoke about. But really, it's showing up and you know being true to your word. And when you know you can't be in moments, being honest and vulnerable with that with your team. I think when you give that to them, they will give that back to you. Hundred times over, you know, like the the dividends of that type of um, management is huge, and I agree with you. I think you know, as um, as a manager, you are not just managing people; you are guiding that person towards the resources that they need. That might be resources internally that are tied to work, but that also might be you know connecting them to opportunities to find a therapist or opportunities to deal with issues that are happening outside the world. We're spending, you know, upwards to 70 or 80 hours at work every week. It's about saying, you know, how are you? What's going on in your world? How can I help? And really opening it up and being really broad with that. You might get a ton of crazy things coming at you that you may not be able to handle, but if you're able to handle it with grace and at least connect those people and be honest about your own limitations and how you can help that person, but also being able to guide them to the resources that can help them. I think those are all things that make a manager more holistic and more effective. Excellent. Michael, so to bring you in on the same question. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and actually, I had a couple of really good examples recently. So talking to my new employees, one of them coming from an environment that was rated extremely high when it comes to great place to work. And so my curiosity was, what made the huge difference? What, what was the thing that got you placed in number one and number two on the Forbes list? Because meaning there are lots of companies out there and they're trying all kinds of things. What made the difference? And he said, it's really the experience that the managers that I've worked for across the board or that others have worked for have always looked at me as an individual more so than just a contributor at work. And if something went wrong, and that really was the the telling part of it, if something went wrong, and there's always something that goes wrong, the first question was, are you okay? It wasn't, why did that happen? Or how did you break that one? It was, are you okay? And he said, you experience that repetitively 
you see that happening to others, that is what built a family. So he described that work environment actually as a family because they were watching out for each other. And um, I think that's just, and Aaron just mentioned micromanagement. I think you, you as well, Marcus. I had an interesting, very tiny little example yesterday. Uh, one of my new employees is working on a on a virtual platform of of some kind, and she had made a change, and she wanted for me to approve that little change. It was just a name change, and sent me a, a text message saying yay or nay. First of all, I didn't quite know what she was asking for. I said, I'm sure it's okay, but I'm not quite sure what it is you're asking for. <laughs> and the second part of my feedback was, I don't want you having to feel as if you have to ask me, go with it. I'm sure it's good. If not, we'll fix it. And I think that's also a part of you make your own decisions. You operate within everything that makes sense because I know your intention is good. And yes, you know very little of the bigger picture two weeks into the job. But in the end, I'll trust you. And I will grow and extend that trust on an ongoing basis. Don't feel compelled having to ask me. But I think it's kind of initially when you build these relationships, it's it's kind of probing, putting the toes in the water to figure out, so what type of manager is he really? Is he telling us that we can do all the things, but then he's coming down on us when we do something that we shouldn't? Or is he actually backing up his words with actions? Every time that Michael speaks, I feel inspired. But I just want to tell a real quick story. And it's a really um, easy thing to implement as a manager. When you bring on a new employee, the times that I have felt most seen and valued as a new employee is then when a manager said to me, you're coming in here with clear eyes. You don't have the bias of working here for X amount of years. So give us your honest feedback. How can we improve? And that little thing has made me feel so inspired because I'm very much like you, Michael. I like to innovate and iterate and feel like I'm being a part of something that's creating something better. And so that for me, is like a chef's kiss. <laughs> If I can just feedback on that immediately, actually, I've called it fresh pair of eyes versus new or clear, but I've used that for years when I was in HR, had a mid-sized company, 500 employees, we hired on a weekly basis. And you know how that is when you come into a job, you know nothing. You don't even know how to get an outside line on the phone because you know so little about the organization. And you feel helpless. You feel like... Even so, you might have 20 years of work experience. You feel like you're striding over because you're in a new environment. So I asked all of my new employees, and I met face-to-face with all of them, there's one really, really important task. And Aaron, exactly what you just said. I want you to come back to me in seven to 10 days, and I want you to tell me one thing that you liked that you've seen. And I want you to point out three things that you don't like, that we can do better. And that's normally when they said, what? No, I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> but the point was the fresh pair of eyes, the outside view enables them to see things that we, having been in that organization for a long period of time, don't see any longer. So I was trying to instill in them, in them that you have a tremendous value you can bring to the organization by having this fresh pair of eyes. And they walked away, they felt like they had a purpose, they could make a contribution from that first day forward. And it always led to really, really helpful insights a week down the road. And I put a list together of all of that and presented it to the senior leadership team on a quarterly basis. And we made a ton of changes based on what new hires told us we weren't doing a good good job with. That's a fabulous idea. I remember one of my early jobs was acting as the executive assistant to the Australian consul in Manchester. Mm. I still have to apologize to Lynn, who picked up my filing after I left. And on my first day, the consul asked me, can you come up with some ideas to reduce costs or generate revenue? And I was straight out of university. It was my first job. And I came up with 18, and she implemented 17 of them. On the third day, I discovered office politics. And she was a lovely boss, genuinely really cared. But what she didn't do was protect me because there were people who'd been there 35 years and had never come up with a single idea. And at that point, that, that was a really bad watershed moment for me because it taught me, it took me probably 10, 15 years to be able to get over it that you shouldn't express an opinion and you shouldn't put your head above the parapet. 
And so what Michael has just suggested needs to be done in a safe environment with the three Ps, permission, protection, and potency. So make sure you build that in. Look, we've come to the top of the hour. This has been a really insightful conversation and extremely helpful. Let's wrap up with one takeaway, one, one choice bit of advice that you would give a first-time manager in order to create that microculture. What would you suggest? So who wants to take that? Well, I guess we're both taking that, right? Just with slightly yeah, so <laughs> So, Michael, you spoke first, so you lose. Go ahead. All right, right. Now, I don't see this as losing. I, I think yeah. um, I would let, let me let me coin a term. I call it life work synergy. We've heard about life work balance. We've heard about life work integration. Now that we're in the midst of a pandemic, I think we're eating our own words when it comes to life work integration. But I believe life work synergy is something that if you go back to the root of the word synergy, there are two pieces that come together, but they make more than the two pieces individually. And I believe that a first-time manager, understanding the concept that if you invite the whole person to work, you actually end up with much more than just the employee to do the job. So that would be my recommendation. Go on that journey, discover the full person, invite the full person to come to work, and be a part of this, share on, from your perspective as well. And I think you will develop beautiful relationships that might actually go well beyond work and highly engaged employees as an outcome. Aaron? I love that. And I'm probably iterating on something that Michael said um, earlier, but you know, go on those exercises to not only find um, what is meaningful or the motivations of your team, but also be involved in that yourself and do that, take on that exercise alongside of them. So when you are asking your team to do something, I think being able to do that alongside of them um, develops a lot of rapport and trust amongst the employee and the manager. So simple exercise, do it together, share it, um, and allow for those moments of those water cooler moments or those moments of just chit chat. Um, if you're, you know, getting in, in a virtual world, getting into a meeting, you know, spend maybe the first 10 minutes just checking in with everybody and having those conversations about their life and what's going on in yours as well. And if you don't start sweating and feel uncomfortable, you're not being vulnerable enough. <laughs> I'm definitely with you on that. My tuppence worth is, I'm going to give two because it's my podcast. One is genuinely listen and listen with empathy and be fully present when you listen. Uh, Laura Janasek, says listening is the transfer of meaning and make sure that you understand what people mean not what you assume the second bit of advice i would give is give people permission to fail and one of the things i really love is the concept of the failure log and what you do is you people can fail and they can screw but screw up big but you'd never punish them for failing you punish them for hiding it because it's the lessons that you learn from your failures that are truly valuable. I have never learned anything really substantive from my victories. They're normally the byproduct of lots of failure along the way. But capturing my failures, capturing my lessons, and feeling that it was okay to fail meant that I took risk. And you shouldn't be encouraging people to maximize their risk. People don't understand the difference between risking and sacrificing. So if you imagine a graph and you've got plus and minus one and zero in the middle, zero is just coasting. Sacrificing is going from, lower, uh, from higher value to lower value, and there is no upside. Risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility that you may lose some or all of what you've got. And I think if you really want to foster an environment where people bring their whole self, where they are creative, you need to make sure that failure is not punished, it's encouraged. So that's my happens. And I think outcome shouldn't be even the driver. It has to be behavior all the time because outcome is out of our control. Behavior is the controllable piece. And that's, Marcus, I think that's how you started the conversation, right? Absolutely. Let's wrap up. Tell me one book that you'd recommend for people to read that might help them uh, move down this path. I mentioned the book earlier. Let me repeat it because I think it's really worth the read. I think it got so much attention in, in a short period of time, it immediately got out of print. 
It is What is Your End, A-N-D, by John Garrett. It's a quick read, but it gives lots of examples of how individuals can bring their whole selves to work and how you can humanize the work environment. Brilliant. And Aaron? I'm trying to think of one. I guess I have to probably um, talk about Simon's books. <laughs> that inspired a lot of what I said today. So Leaders Eat Last. I think, you know, any book on maybe that sort of idea of servant leadership um, are all good start, excuse me, starting places because um, it's just a, so radically different from what I think a lot of um, leaders were trained in, again, the 80s and 90s kind of coming up in their careers. And mine, I think, would be The Right Use of Power by Peter Block. It's mm-hmm. a lovely book. And I would also strongly recommend anything by Patrick Glencioni. And one great one is The Five Dysfunctions of the Team. Excellent. So, Erin, how can people get hold of you? So, yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, my name is spelled differently, so E-R-Y-N-N Bell. You can find me on there. Excellent. Michael? Yeah, probably the same here. Um, Michael Puck, P-U-C-K. And my handle on, on LinkedIn is Puck N-U-S-A. Excellent. Thank you both. Wonderful, enlightening, and I hope we can do this again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation useful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And please do get in touch with me at Marcus at laughs, L A U G H S hyphen last L A S T dot com or via LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a great guest, or you know someone who would be, please connect on LinkedIn or connect us on LinkedIn, and I'll do my best to get them on as a guest. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.